0: President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief go to America go He will fall cables now. I think
1: cable history is exciting and
2: personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry.
3: Hello and welcome to Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm your host, Luke Woodruff. The content presented in this series is edited from the audio and video recordings found in the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral Video History Project. Today's episode: The Story of DOCSIS. Short for Digital Over Cable Service Interface Specification, DOCSIS is the international standard for high-speed internet connectivity. In creating DOCSIS, Cable Labs. Its cable operator members and technology vendor partners bridged the worlds of cable and digital networking that cleared the path for some of the most innovative ideas and applications in the history of communications, including YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. DOCSIS celebrated its 25th anniversary in 2015. To commemorate this industry milestone, Larry Sekowiak, former president and CEO of the Cable Center, gathered Cable Labs veterans Robert Cruikshank III, Thomas Moore, and Brian Riley to chronicle their work together on the DOCSIS development process in the early 1990s, leading up to the development of cable modems and two-way broadband communications at speeds nobody had seen before. Cruikshank also discussed the lessons learned from the telephone company's development of ISDN and the importance of standardized equipment specifications and interoperability. And now, the story of DOCSIS.
4: 2015 marks the 20th anniversary of DOCSIS. We're at the Cable Center today to discuss its development with some of the people that were originally involved with it. Uh, on the panel today, we have Robert Cruikshank, who was the team leader uh, in those days. Uh, Tom Moore, who did the original modem testing on the uh, cable modem and, and Mac development. I can't uh, can't forget that. And Brian Riley, who partnered with Tom and Robert in doing some of the designing and testing of the uh, of the system uh, right from the early days. And so let me get straight to it. and. Um, Robert, um,
5: why don't we just start with, what is DOCSIS, and why is it important? Okay. Um, Well, DOCSIS is a a long acronym. It stands for the Data Over Cable Service Interface Specifications, and there's a whole handful of specifications. It's uh, probably about eight inches of material, Um, but it basically lays out how a modem talks to the the mothership in the cable network, and, and vice versa, how the whole communication protocol happens, and the signaling methods, and allows you to then buy a modem from any vendor you want and hook it up to the network and it'll work interoperably. And so, uh, why was it important at that particular
4: time? 1995 is the time frame we're talking about.
5: It was a really interesting time and, and we've all, I think, got some, some memories of that time. If you look at uh, around February 1995, about two thirds of the homes in the United States had a computer, one computer, for two years or less. So everybody had just sort of gotten computers. They were just getting to the point where they could like, get these computers hooked up to modems and to talk out to services like AOL and, and Prodigy and CompuServe. Um, and everybody wanted you know, more bandwidth, more speed, more connectivity. This was a unique opportunity you know, for cable. Um, and, and just even outside of cable, if you look at what was happening with the growth, Um, Around that time, uh, uh, Netscape was a very popular browser that had uh, just come out uh, late in 1994. Early 1995, they were having something like five million hits a day to their homepage. Microsoft didn't even have a browser at that time. Um, And Netscape within a year's time or so grew to about 50 million hits a day. So the whole web was just exploding. There was something like 27,000 websites total. um, And that number was doubling every 53 days. And so, you know, as an industry, we just saw there was a huge opportunity. People were clamoring to, to get on the Internet and to make the Internet what it has become. And, Tom, you know, I remember the Hayes modem. You know, I had, you know, when you unplug your— I do,
2: too, unfortunately.
4: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it, I don't think people really um, nowadays realize that uh, you could use your telephone, you could use your modem, but you couldn't use both at the same time. Right. And you had to unplug your telephone to plug in your, your Hayes modem. Um what was the technology like uh, in those days? I mean, beyond that, you know, uh, you know, especially in terms of speed. I mean, how fast was really fast yeah. in those days?
2: I mean, as you said, uh, and I remember when my daughter was born, literally sitting up in the evenings uh, with her on my lap, and she's only 21 now, and surfing the web with, as you said, one of those Hayes modems. You know, a 9.6 kilobit modem, a 28.8 kilobit modem. Miraculously, a 56 kilobit (laughs) modem. Uh, You know, the web doesn't come across very quickly when you're talking about tens of kilobits. And so, in the early days, you know, of data over cable, I think there was this belief that we could enhance the experience dramatically. Moving from 56 kilobits to miraculously what was sort of known as a T1 in those days. One and a half megabits, that sounds... Horribly slow today <laughs> by today's standards, but in those days, wow, how could anybody ever want more than a T1 into their house? Uh, so that was uh, sort of part of the, the vision. And then, you know, to have a device that was always on so mm-hmm. that you could access the internet, uh, do what we sort of talked about was snacking on different things, just a quick web search, things that we take for granted today. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those days, you couldn't do that i uh, mentioned AOL and CompuServe and and uh, some of the dial up um, precursors to the web you you set aside time you dialed in you did you know your research or read things etc your phone line was tied up during the time you couldn't make a phone call then uh, and you know it was dreadfully slow so the idea behind doxus and the cable modem in general was to sort of free us of that give us higher speed and and have it always on
4: you guys are working on something that, you know, just just to put it in perspective, something like a thousand times faster.
2: Yes. Right? Yes. You know, isn't
4: that the, the order of magnitude that we're looking at, yes. you know, with this? Well, Brian, the uh, telcos were obviously not standing still at this point. They were working on a competing technology called ISDN. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
6: Yes, exactly. The, uh, the telco industry was focusing on ISDN. Uh, it was a low data rate uh, offering, data offering. Um, the... The challenge, it, was, it was based on a lot of the TDM technology that uh, you know, the teleco industry had been previously using, but applied more towards, uh, towards the consumer and small, small uh, enterprise operations. The big challenge with ISDN was that while it was a very uh, extensive protocol, a very extensive specification, there were a lot of interoperability challenges um, with the, the equipment from the various vendors. And so what was the cable industry's response? The cable industry was also working to address the, the insatiable user demand. They were working in a couple of different areas. Cable operators were deploying fiber optic technology deep into their networks. And just as importantly, if not more, the, uh, the cable systems were evolving from a one-way, primarily one-way broadcast technology to a two-way technology. And that was really a big paradigm shift because in that case, then signals could come from the subscriber back up to the head end. And that enabled the ability to start to talk about services, interactive services like interactive data, voice and video, much more like the, uh, the types of things we are familiar with today.
4: You guys all work for Dick Green and, and um, Dick we're gonna be interviewing later on uh, in the series too to get uh, his perspective. But uh, Dick obviously had a vision over at Cable Labs that you guys all bought into uh, at you know uh, at at one point, Brian, could you tell me what was Dick's vision and and how did you go you guys go about uh, you know getting that vision um, accomplished you know and and doing it?
6: Well, I think Dick realized as as the rest of us did that the cable modems, like most electronic equipment, had vital statistics on what it was doing and how it was doing, and just like the vital statistics for a uh, human let you know how their health is, give you clues to what their health is like. The statistics on the modems like noise levels and and error rates and those kinds of things allowed you to take a look at what the health of the the cable network was. And so the idea was that in a system where you've implemented these modems, what you've really got is a set of remote sensors to the network. And so folks like Pamela Anderson and uh, on our team was mm-hmm. particularly focused on what can be done with that information to, to use it and proactively uh, detect issues and turn your engineers and your uh, support staff on to resolving those issues before subscribers see the impacts. And there wasn't a whole lot of test
4: equipment for some of this stuff. I mean, you were kind of inventing it as you were going, weren't you? Right, right, yeah. absolutely.
6: There was some initial stuff, but very mm-hmm. little at that okay. time.
4: Robert, I know you know. getting back to the, what the telcos were working on, and I think a lot of this is motivated by competition and, uh, and what they were doing with ISDN. Obviously there were some things that were working very well with ISDN, but some things that didn't work so well. Um, you and I have talked before about this, and obviously there were some lessons to be learned there and things that you tried to avoid. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that?
5: Sure. Um, I actually had had my first job out of school was at AT&T Bell Laboratories in Denver. So prior to coming to Cable Labs, I had had this experience with watching ISDN kind of come over the horizon and being very excited about it because it, it kind of got past that piece that Tom mentioned where you could do data and have a phone call at the same time. Granted, it wasn't at any decent speed you know, by today's standards, but it, it did have this sort of data channel that would run simultaneously. Um, but what we saw happen there, which was just a real uh, train wreck uh, in terms of technology development, we saw the standards bodies uh, really not able to carry through the ISDN specifications all the way to the point of interoperability in the field. So the two big gorillas in the room, AT&T and Nortel, uh, they both made phones, they both made central office equipment, the mothership equipment that the phones would talk to, and yet the phone from one wouldn't talk with the switch from the other. Uh, And then at the last minute, they swapped the uh, physical layer, the actual transmission layer, so that all of a sudden the silicon vendors were now had a bunch of stuff that they designed that wasn't going to be useful anymore. So these lessons learned were critical for us uh, in developing the cable modem, because we knew that we not only had to write the specification, we had to get the interoperability done, and then we had to certify that this equipment worked before it got out in the field so that there weren't these interoperability challenges. We really didn't want to end up with the same sort of roadkill that we saw with ISDN. But I know you went out to the field with the technicians
4: as they were doing some installation of these things too, and so you saw, you were out of the lab. I, you know, and I think you had to be in the field to see what was actually going on with some of the stuff. What, what are the kinds of things that you saw in the field?
5: We had a wonderful boss at Cable Labs who worked for Dick. At the time, we worked for Scott Bachman and Scott worked for Dick. Scott made sure that we got a sense of what was going on in cable. So you put on gaffs, you climbed a pole, you rode along with installers uh, and saw what they were doing. And it became very clear that they did not have uh, very many, if any, uh, tools that would help them see how well the network was doing. So going back to Brian's point about you know where Dick was very enthusiastic about having the best Uh, instrumented network and the best monitored network in the world for an access network um, these guys were completely on the other end of that spectrum they just didn't have the tools to work with that so in one day I did an install and we were trying to figure out this was a pre-wired home I'm with the tech and we're trying to figure out which wire went up to the bedroom where they wanted to have a, a TV so he went to the bedroom there was already an f connector the cable connector in the wall he had a little nine volt battery with a homemade connector on it that he could stuff into the into the wall jack he did that without considering if anything else was really hooked up to the network at that point so he just stuffed his battery into there went down to the basement where there was four or five wires that were um, unterminated, but one of them was to that room and he just proceeded one at a time and touched them to his tongue And felt that, you know, looking for that familiar nine volt tingle and knew that was the one for the bedroom. And he then stripped it off and terminated it and then hooked it up. Again, now nine volts was going into the network, mm-hmm. uh, not just in the house, but back into the cable network. And then we went up to the room, got a nine volt battery, and, and we were gone. And that was about a 15 minute job. So it was, you know, quick and easy. Necessity being the mother of invention. Exactly. You know, I suppose. Exactly. With these things.
4: So, um, Tom, why don't you talk a little bit about how the team? Came together, you, you three guys, the other people on your team, um, uh, because I don't, I don't think you were part of the the cable industry, weren't you at the University of Colorado at the time?
2: Uh, the three of us met actually at CU. Okay. Uh, Bob was first, um, and he met uh, me and Brian, uh, and called us up. He, you were first at Cable Labs, called us up and said, "There's this," and I had known a little bit about Cable Labs. I was actually working on. Uh, technology known as asynchronous transfer mode, ATM, which seemed like all the rage at the time. It's sort of uh, been passed by since then, but was working on video switching and other things. I definitely had some exposure to what the cable industry is doing. Um, and so I'd known Cable Labs and had known Dick a little bit, but, uh, but definitely uh, Bob was the first entree into Cable Labs and convinced Brian and and I had to come, um, there was this new thing, uh, land city modems, other manufacturers, very few people using the technology. But this vision that you know this could transform the cable industry and that we needed uh, to evaluate the technology, maybe needed to improve. At the time, we didn't think we had to write our own specification, right? It really started out very much as an experiential testing uh, kind of activity. Bob encouraged us to go out and uh, try to find people that knew how to test this kind of thing, gear that that we could use. Uh, We engaged with famous people in the industry like uh, Scott Bradner at at Harvard and asked him, what kinds of tests would you run? How would you run them? And so it started out very experiential. Uh, Slowly but surely, we began to realize, wow, there's this need for interoperability. Uh, The vendors themselves, uh, although motivated, in some ways to get there, um, you know, needed some help organizing that. So we got more into developing the specifications themselves. But really it started out literally trying to learn about the technology, learn what its capabilities were, and pass that on to the member companies mm-hmm. at Cable Labs. Okay.
4: Let's, um, let me ask each of you, and we'll just kind of go down the line and we'll start with Robert. Um, what, uh, what was your particular contribution in the development of DOCSIS, what were you assigned to do? Uh, obviously, Dick Green, I think, assigned you to uh, to be the team leader with this. Um, why don't we just each go through and and tell me your part in the development of DOCSIS and 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 the industry? Uh, obviously, specifications that came from that. So,
5: Robert, thank you. So, at the outset. Um, we had started to do these, uh, cable apps had started to do a couple different RFPs. So one was the telecommunications RFP, that was a really big deal. It, it envisioned the two-way services that Brian mentioned. Uh, Ron Rizzuto had done a lot of the mathematical models to show, you know, was it cost effective to activate the two-way in a metro environment, uh, in a rural environment, et cetera. Um, and so we were evaluating these RFPs and um, we got the idea, you know, that it would be smart to ask the membership what is it that, that they would like to have in terms of modem information. So at the outset, it really was about contacting the people that were running cable modem trials already and then asking them, you know, how can we help you guys? And so these were folks like George Hart up at Rogers, um, David Fellows up at Continental Cablevision, Steve Craddock and company down at Comcast, um, Marty Weiss also uh, was working uh, Comcast in Phoenix, I'm sorry. Um, Cox in Phoenix. Um, we had uh, some Cox properties out in San Diego. Uh, Doug Seaman was working up in Castro Valley, and and there was two or three different modem vendors. Uh, Land City, as Tom had mentioned, there was Zenith Networks, and then Hybrid Networks were really the only three games in town. And each of the MSOs had a product they were focusing on, but they didn't really know how well their product was, or the strengths and weaknesses, vis-a-vis the other manufacturers products, because they were so busy with the existing manufacturer. So, the, the real short answer, sorry for being so long, was really just around can you do like a consumer reports kind of function to help us understand the relative strengths and weaknesses of these existing modem systems from the three vendors. So, at the outset, that really was the, the charter that I had. Okay.
2: Um, so, it- As we were talking about the first thing we did is we tried to test these modems. And Brian and I spent a lot of time trying to think through how do you hook them up? How do you feed traffic into them as a system? As you increase the traffic, how well do they respond? Do they hold up when they fall down? How do they fall down? Do they fail gracefully and so forth? And we realized as we got into that, that we began to see interesting behaviors and we didn't know why. Uh, We tried to reverse engineer it, but we couldn't figure it out. And so, pretty soon, we came to the conclusion that we needed to do two things simultaneously. One, we needed to test the physical device itself. And two, we needed to model its performance characteristics. And in particular, uh, what is known as the Media Access Control Protocol, the MAC protocol. If you think about Ethernet, that's a MAC technology when you have a shared network. You've gotta have a technology that allows each modem to transmit only when it's its turn. Um, And so that's known as the Mac. And so I started out uh, early on doing um, simulations around the Mac protocol and comparing that with the tests that Brian was running. And we learned together. we learned what, how do they perform physically, We'd run some simulation. We'd figure out, wow, that's maybe why. Let's change the simulation so forth. So, uh, evolved in that direction. Um, and then, as things continued, I became more responsible for the sele- the final selection of the Mac um, in the DOCSIS 1.0 and 1.1 specification. But that's basically how I got into it.
6: Brian? And as Tom mentioned, we started out together working on these tests, building on the the early test suites that we had learned about from the IETF and Scott Bradner in there in the uh, benchmark methodology working group, and we built up on those tests with uh, additional techniques and additional equipment, um, and then as as Tom focused on the the Mac as he mentioned, you know I, I sort of took it from there and continued the testing with different systems and and different test systems and continuing to do as as Bob was describing. Characterizing in a, the data performance of the systems uh, in sort of a Consumer Reports way for the for the uh, the cable operators to be able to choose which of the particular systems fit their needs the best. Didn't you guys have to create like a, a mini
4: system to to test this some some sort of a I don't know you know how 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 would you test you know this stuff? I, nobody had tested it before, is is my understanding. Uh, so what kind of a
6: system did you build around that? Well, it's it started actually with this Wandel and Golterman device, this test device that uh, that Bob said we had pointed out that we had identified early on that ran this suite of tests. We had literally built a, a set of a modem system for each of the each of the vendors, the Zenith, Land City, and Hybrid, on a on a table uh, was with lengths of cable, you know, a uh, number of feet long, and that was basically it. A number of modems, the head end equipment. And we would take the uh, the test unit and and connect up, you know, a, a cable to each end and mm-hmm. run the test suite that way. Mm-hmm. Over time, that evolved to bigger and better test equipment and systems with larger and larger modems. Mm-hmm.
4: And so, um, you know, we've kind of hinted around this, you know, the different types of modems uh, that you guys were testing. Obviously, I'm very familiar with Ruzbe Yassini, uh, and we've interviewed him a number of times here about uh, you know his part at Land City you also had Zenith and what was
5: the third that you guys were testing out it was a a modem system that was made in in a companion or a a partnership with um, hybrid networks which was a small startup in California and GI and Mm -hmm. so they they had a system they put together with some GI components and some hybrid network developed components okay and and what did your results show it was really interesting I mean, we were we were amazed how well or i'm sorry how much these systems differentiated themselves from one another so brian mentioned we had these three different tabletops one tabletop was a land city system which land city graciously had given us and had given us the training on and they had actually told us about this Wandling golderman tester that um, that we were able to use across all three of them and then we had one from zenith and then and one from um hybrid and and intel and um we found that the the, uh, the Zenith modem, um, it had the slowest speeds. It had there was a 500 kilobit version, half a megabit, and then there was a four megabit version. Um, and it worked fairly well, but it was a repeater. So every piece of traffic that a modem sent, every other modem saw and and it was had an awful lot of traffic was moving around that wasn't really um, providing any use to the end users. In that sort of repeater methodology um, for the MAC protocol. And then Land City had a system which was very powerful. It did 10 megabits in each direction. And if you clobbered it with data, um, it would actually degrade gracefully and then it would recover gracefully, whereas some of the, the other two systems would not. Um, and it would move 10 megabits. It was, a, it was more sensitive in an RF environment, so in the presence of, of realistic, uh, you know, beyond our tabletop but in a real cable system, in the presence of, uh, of noise and things like that, it suffered uh, more so. Um, But it was very powerful and it had a lot of health metrics. So you could kind of see, as Brian was starting to say, it had some instrumentation to say how healthy is the modem, how healthy is the network and things like that. And then the system from a Hybrid and Intel uh, and GI that was a um, that did, did sort of moved a lot of data in one direction and not as much data in in the return. So its forward was higher capacity than its return. And um, in the tests that Brian mentioned that were developed um, with the Benchmark Methodology Working Group under the, the leadership of Scott Bradner in the Internet Engineering Task Force, this tester had been designed so that it would send very small packets. Uh, and step up in in frame rate, and then it would go up to a larger packet and step up in frame rate. So it was this nested loop that eventually would end up, starting with small packets, very large packets, across a whole number of different frame rates. And we saw these modem systems, like the Land City could handle just about anything you could throw at it. The other systems fell over under certain conditions. They fell over in a way that they stopped forwarding traffic altogether, so they didn't even degrade gracefully, and in some cases they wouldn't come back gracefully either.
4: So you've got uh, you've you've got the Land City modem. You've got experience with other modems, getting it kind of off the bench and into the field. Uh, that that has to be a, a little bit of a, a leap. You know, it, it's it's one thing to know how how all these things work. How did you finally convince the cable industry that this is something that uh, they needed to get into? That that it was something that they needed to continue to pursue.
5: I think there were probably several forces happening at the time. The the MCNS Partners was a subset of the Cable Labs uh, membership. They were starting to look at uh, next generation silicon and investments that they could make to develop sort of next generation set-tops and things like that. I think they they saw the need for, for data modems um we started realizing with the additional tests that brian and tom were doing where we didn't just do you know traffic sent and receive we started to get into multi-port testers we got up to like 80 modems that and and a much more realistic cable plant we built a whole indoor network that represented a small city um, and we had traffic flowing in each of these and we were trying to get very real each day more and more realistic traffic and we convinced ourselves i think through the process that none of the existing modem systems really had the functionality the full set of functionality even though each one had certain strengths none had the full set of functionality to take us into the next millennium to be able to do voice for example okay
4: and so we're talking about what 1995 going into 1996 when the cable industry really kind of gets on board with all this yes okay Tom and, and Brian, I have to ask you both, uh, you know, just because uh, you know it's come up in some of our conversations uh, and stuff before, is uh, I have to ask you about the Network General sniffer and the sixty-second surf test. Uh, what is that? In the trip
5: to, to Washington to <laughs> Congress. Tri- right. <laughs>
6: right. <laughs> well, the Network General sniffer is a um, it's a it's a piece of test equipment that's used to capture packets. It's traditionally used as a troubleshooting device. It can capture packets and and give you analysis of the ability to analyze deeply what's going on and uh, look specifically at individual characteristics in packet flow between two devices. In our particular case, we weren't using it so much for troubleshooting as we were using it to capture the flow of, of traffic in an example web surf. We were trying to capture a realistic traffic. The testing that we had been doing previously was Um, from canned tests, if you will. Um, What we wanted to do was to extend the testing using realistic traffic from realistic web surf. So we used the Network General Sniffer in a a test environment where we set up some web surfing and captured that traffic to be able to replay it again and again, repeatably, through a test modem system. Yeah, I mean, what Brian said, it began... Uh, very
2: much at the link layer. We're generating packets of different size, and we're feeding those into the network, and we're seeing how the modem would react. Through the use of this device and just knowledge that we were gaining, we began to realize that the real traffic on the network works through many different layers. TCP IP is, tr- is a closed-loop protocol. TCP itself does weird things when it senses congestion that's gonna slow down the offered load and so forth. So we began to realize, wow, um, we not only have to get smarter about how we we generate these tests because just feeding one-way link layer packets into the network is not a very realistic test. And two, um, you know, we want to figure out not only how do they scale, so you go from 10 modems to 100 modems to 1,000 modems, but what is the true experience that the user is gonna see when something happens, when there's congestion on the network and so forth. And uh, so we began um, at that moment to rely even more heavily on some of the simulation work that we were doing. The Mac simulation, we had TCP IP blocks on top of the Mac itself. And so now, in simulation, over, let's say, 500 modems, we're doing realistic surf sessions, clear up through the OSI you know, reference model stack and trying hour. from each modem and really trying to assess what that looks like. And that's when we really began to realize, wow, there, there's a lot going on here, uh, as Bob said. We began to realize each of these systems sort of has their strengths, but they have some weaknesses as well. And you know, wouldn't it be cool if we could figure out how to take the strengths from a number of different places and combine them.
4: Now, you guys saw an awful lot of modems at one point. Didn't you do an RFP, you know, for the industry? And didn't you get, it seemed like an incredible response. And so you guys at Cable Labs had had to be testing a lot of this kind of stuff and increasing your knowledge along the way about the different things that worked and, you know, and didn't work. So, so Robert, you want to talk about that? Uh, what,
5: what did that RFP look like? So the, the, the first RFP was the Cable Telecommunications RFP. That's the, the one we mentioned that actually came out in the, in the late summer of, uh, of um, 1994. And, um, and there was a lot of, um, of hoopla around that. John Malone and others, the Cable Labs Executive Committee had a press conference on Wall Street declared we were getting into two-way as an industry and would be providing telephone services and triple play voice video and data. Um, and the responses that came back were from, as Milo Medin would say, you sort of all the usual suspects, right? AT and T, Nortel, Alcatel, Siemens, um, and and you know, dozens more. Um, Then there was a follow-on RFP that was written by uh, Masuma Ahmed, and and she was a tour de force. She went and closed the door of her office, and she wrote this RFP single-handedly. It was called the High-Speed Cable Data Service RFP, and it was incredible. I mean, it came out like 99% complete when she opened her door, and it was completely soup to nuts. Everything that the industry wanted, including RF parameters, she had participated not only in the, in the Internet Engineering Task Force, but she had participated with the Cable Labs members and trying to figure out what are the RF parameters that, that are appropriate for you know, signal-to-noise and power levels and, and modulation formats and channel widths and, and things like that, group delay, echo response, micro-reflections. She just had a handle on all of this stuff. And um, the responses that came back from that, again, most of the the, you know, sort of all the usual suspects showed up. But we started to see some, not only consumer electronics manufacturers, um, but some real specific modem proposals. And they distinguished themselves a lot. And, And to Tom's point, this is where we were starting to get The benefit of of all these engineers in the industry responding, and we were able to sort of look at this stuff and theoretically get their explanations while we practically could go into the lab and try stuff out. Mm -hmm. So, we had, as the Germans would say, this Lehr und Kunst with theory and practice, and we were always going back and forth either through simulation and testing or through RFP and then simulation and testing and looking to see what, you know, kind of what were these systems and how did they distinguish themselves. And the short piece coming back from the RFPs was that there was a very small list of vendors that actually had insight into how to make it always on, always connected, but not use any network resources if there was no traffic being sent by that user. So, you know, this idea when you take a phone off hook, you know, nobody can call you, right? So to be always on in the phone model just doesn't really work. But in this model, there was a couple of vendors, Land City being the notable one that said you know you could have you know, hundreds of stations ready to talk at any instant, but not using any network resources until it was time for them to do so. And that was a huge efficiency gain. And in contrast, if you looked at most of the telco responses, and I don't mean to be disparaging, but you know, AT&T, Alcatel, Siemens, Lucent, Nortel, they were all coming back with give the user a 64 kilobit time slot. So in almost like in a, in a round-robin fashion, if you've got data to send and you're a modem, you know, you'd get a 64 kilobit time slot. Then I would get it, then Tom, then Brian, then back to you. Well, by the time you went to hundreds of users on, on a, like in a node in a neighborhood, it was crazy because you would lose a lot of time because a lot of us wouldn't have anything to say. So we'd say, nope, I got nothing. And Tom would say, nope, I got nothing. and Brian would say, nope, I got nothing. And you, then you're waiting for all that before you can send your next packet. And yet all the brains in the industry, the traditional telecom brains were coming back with that. And it was probably an outgrowth of what they had done with digital loop carrier and and the T1 line that Tom had mentioned, TDM. where you could put 24 voice circuits on a single copper twisted pair, but that was time division multiplexing, and that wasn't going to cut it. It was going to kill the cable uh, business model, and these data approaches were were much more viable. What do you think on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 real contribution, and, and Ruse Bay and the folks at Land City contributed so much that um, it's hard to pinpoint one thing, but. At least with regard to, you know, the layer two technology, the Mac uh, technology, the thing that Land City realized early on is the best way to tackle this problem is a combination of both contention-based traffic and reservation-based traffic. Contention-based traffic is more like Ethernet. We all might transmit at the same time. If we have a collision, there's a back-off algorithm and we figure it out. And so it allows us to transmit only when we want to, and we finally figure it out, but it's somewhat inefficient, and also services like voice and other things don't work perfectly over it. Um, on the other hand, reservation-based traffic, as Bob said, is can be hugely inefficient if people don't have anything to send. And the thing that Land City did so elegantly is combine those two concepts in a protocol a vision for a protocol that you could do both. You could start with contention-based traffic. If you had higher layer of service that you needed or more traffic to send, you reverted to a reservation-based mechanism, and it was it was an elegant solution, which is why it works so well under load. Your team at Cable Labs
4: that you guys were a part of, uh, obviously Cable Labs was doing some cutting-edge kinds of stuff, and you all had an expertise that a, very few people in the country, it seemed to me, you know, had. Um, you know, we're getting close to the end of our time. So let me just each ask you the question and we'll start with Brian. Did you realize this was a big thing when you were working on it? And then tell us a little bit about what you're doing now.
6: We did, I think. Uh, And I I think each of us who was lucky enough to be part of this uh, actually might have just a little bit better feel for what it was like to maybe be an explorer back in the old days, like a Lewis and Clark. You had an, you knew you were on the edge of something big, but you you had no map of the landscape. You really didn't know. These cable modem systems were very different than any, any animal we'd seen before. So there was no map, but there was a real electricity in the air. It was an extremely exciting time. And so, you know, we uh, we were able to, with a great team and with uh, the great you know, hugely talented people in the in the MSOs and the vendors. We were able to sort of work together towards towards that goal very effectively. What are you doing now? Right now, I've I've shifted over to the enterprise data environment. I'm no, no longer in the service provider world, but uh, using a lot of what I learned about data and data services more in the in the business world today.
2: Tom, so definitely we're talking at breakfast this morning. A very unique time in the cable industry. Not only did we, but I think, you know, the MSOs themselves believe that this was a big deal. Uh, I don't think anybody expected it to be quite as big a deal as it has become. I think there are over a billion devices now that are Doxus enabled uh, in, in the world. Um, but definitely people saw this as a huge opportunity, And but yet there was no legacy. There was no relationships with you know key suppliers or large installed base. And so it was a unique time when the whole cable industry really under the leadership of John Malone and others came together and focused on creating this together, making it truly interoperable. And I think it was unique in that regard. Um, in terms of me, I actually, at the time was living about 30 miles west of Denver uh, up in the mountains. Um, and uh, I began to realize I'm never going to have a DOXUS cable modem where I live um, and got pretty motivated uh, to think about ways to solve that problem um, and uh, founded a company known as Wild Blue Communications, satellite communications company, where we took Doxis, uh with the help of Broadcom and others and applied it to the satellite world um, and uh, built that to almost uh, a million subscribers, um, sold it to... Viasat, and it's gone on from there. Uh, and I'm still associated with Viasat, so still associated with Doxus and Doxus derivative, uh, in this case, in the satellite industry,
5: not so much the cable industry. Okay, Good. And Robert? Well, let's see. I, I guess we we realized it was a big deal. We, when we saw how much these modems differentiated themselves from one another, we realized there was a great opportunity to design a new mouse trap, And uh, we knew we had uh, only enough knowledge to be dangerous. We didn't have the expertise to really pull it off. So there was a whole chapter that you know is still going to was still going to unfold for us around how do we actually design this next generation modem system, and um, as Tom said, you know there's been a billion of them made, and uh, and in the process of working with the MCNS partners, the cable labs, and the member companies, um, you know we really were able to realize Dick's vision of the most uh, instrumented, uh, most best instrumented you know access network in the world, and today, I um, I get to to work with that, Um, you know. uh, Along the way, I founded a company uh, with Jason Schnitzer uh, and several of the other DOCSIS team. We kind of got a lot of the DOCSIS visiting engineers back together, and uh, we created a, a network management system that just was going to look at all these modems to see what their, what their health was and if they were in trouble. And uh, that work continues. Um, we called the company, uh, we founded it, it was called Stargus. We created a product called Cable Edge. Uh, we were purchased by c um, We Many of us went with C-Corps and then purchased by Aris, and many of us went uh, from c onto Aris. We, we rebranded the product to Serve ashore. Um I have the great pleasure of working with it almost every day. Uh, I, I teach people how to use it. I look for customers that are in trouble. Um, I, I get a, a kick out of uh, designing new tests to find uh, issues so that we're proactively addressing people in trouble uh, before they have to call us. And there's a great return on investment around that. There's a great piece around net promoter score and uh, and the customer experience and uh, you know the timing seems to be right and here we're here we are 20 years later from some of the pioneering work that Pamela Anderson did in the operational support system side making sure that the modems had the smarts in them and and we're now you know still 20 years later using those smarts to, to make sure this network is uh, realizing Dick's vision of being the best instrumented uh, access network in the and world.
4: And certainly has proven itself uh, over time we went from Daxus, uh what was it, one to two, then two to three, and now we're all working on Doxus
5: 3.1 as the, the latest iteration. So what is the future of Doxus? Well, I think in addition to Dick's vision of having the best instrumented network in the world, we'll certainly be increasing speeds all the time and improving the customer experience and being able to get take care of more problems before customers have to contact the cable companies. So the network's just gonna get bigger and stronger, more powerful. The cable operators are gonna be more able to deal with issues. Um, And then I think on the horizon, there's something that's a a really unique opportunity as we get into um, more energy crisis kinds of things and more um, uh, opportunities to use the network to transmit real-time pricing of electricity which can be used to encourage and discourage subscriber loads, and in doing so, to increase efficiency of generation and and, uh, um, transmission of electrical energy. Those efficiencies on the supply side, by orchestrating supply and demand, will allow us to burn less nuclear fuel, burn less coal, burn less oil, uh, and use energy more efficiently and raise an awareness within the homes and, and, and offices around energy as we go towards LED lighting and, and, and higher efficiency air conditioning systems and systems that can come on and off instantly. Um, they can react, you know, refrigerators, hot water heaters, anything with a thermal storage can react in real time to pricing of electricity and instead of having a meandering um, demand um, that monotonically rises and falls throughout the day, we can go to a stair-step demand by using uh, these pricing signals and make those stair-steps um, you know, equate to supply-side generation uh, capability so that there's a real efficiency. And we, we do our part in reducing um, you know, global warming and emissions of greenhouse gases and, and raising awareness right down through schools and, and into homes so that we're having less of an impact on the planet and the resources that we use
4: obviously you've got some success it's always tougher inventing the first one you know and then improving it along the ways um obviously speeds uh you know the capabilities you know a, a 3.1 uh, could, could you ever imagine you know a, a 10 gig kind of uh a system when you were working on this stuff right it's amazing and i, and I know you have a customer-centric focus you and i have worked on some different things with uh, a customer experience management and just trying to narrow down where the customer is going to have a problem before they know they have a problem in a lot of cases which i think is also the the future of the cable industry so gentlemen i thank you for your time uh, i appreciate it uh, certainly uh, i think a lot of people taking a look at this uh, will have a little bit more of an idea of how the cable industry came about with uh, with Doxis right along from the early days so thank you
2: thank you thank you larry
3: As part of the DOCS's 25th anniversary, Satkoviak also interviewed Dr. Richard Green, former CEO of Cable Labs, and John Malone, former chairman and CEO of TCI and current chairman of Liberty Media, Liberty Global, and Liberty Interactive. Malone led the industry's establishment of Cable Labs in order to effectively scale the digital technology and equipment that was necessary for cable companies to provide next-generation broadband services. Green led and stewarded the organization and its many innovations from its inception in 1988 until his retirement in 2008. Here they discuss their recollections of how Doxus evolved and how all the essential elements came together to enable the cable industry to become the leading provider of commercial high-speed Internet service.
1: Well, the industry had rallied to join Cable Labs. We had a very broad buy-in when we created Cable Labs. And so it was a question of people recognizing we needed collectivity, common standards, we need scale. Mm-hmm. And uh, we recruited Dick, of course,
7: and that was... Fortunately, uh, yeah, <laughs> I
6: know. So <laughs> when, when,
7: when did uh, Cable
1: Labs
4: come
7: about? What was the
4: official 89, founding 89, when I was
7: incorporated in 88, and I joined it in 88, and we really started work in 89, and this, then moved the, to Boulder. Yeah. This was
1: the thesis that we needed to escape from proprietary standards that split the industry into many, uh, pieces and try and develop standards that the vendors could then supply mm-hmm. against, uh, what was then essentially a domestic industry, including Canada, right? So our Canadian friends were very quick to support, uh, cable labs and join it mm-hmm. and, uh, I, I would say that there was quite broad buy-in to the need to to uh, develop standards and and, uh, and invent let's, mm-hmm. let's call it invent things we needed to allow the industry to move into this digital age. It's to me that you know part of the role of cable labs was to figure out how to really make this stuff
4: work. Part of your job was how to pay for it, you know for lack of a better word. this is very expensive stuff. you're talking about it. when you project out, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't think people really understand how much of an investment the cable industry had to make in order to
1: give us what we have, you know, today, 20 years later. Well, my wife says redundancy is my charm. <laughs> and I've been talking about scale, 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 scale since I joined the cable industry in 1972. Mm-hmm. Right. It's all about scale yeah. to get manufacturers to do the R&D. Mm-hmm. They got to see the opportunity for scale, and uh, you know that's been just consistent message all the way through. And you don't get scale if you have balkanization or different standards. Probably the biggest scary point for me was when it looked like we had a sole source, right, y- in the boxes box. Yes. 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 And I thought for sure Broadcom was going to own the industry, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, Those they guys, were, they were. Peter Nicholas, yes. they, yeah. were, they were tough guys. That's and some Dick, calls and Dick stared <laughs> them down, right? You really, uh, it was, a, really, fight. It was a fight. He busted it. And, and that was a very important... So, you know, all the way along, there have been pitfalls.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And a very important role of Cable Labs has been developing vendors as competitors, Mm -hmm. you know, if you won't do it, this guy will, and getting the industry the benefit of scale that, and and breaking out of this proprietary trap. You know, encryption was another area uh, as we went digital, where encryption became another pothole, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, are you going to end up with proprietary standards in encryption? so you know that this cable lab organization by at least purporting mm-hmm. to speak for the entire industry increasingly on a global basis right brought scale the promise of large purchase orders and therefore the investment by vendors in r and d and development and and the being willing to bid against increasingly standardized specs i think that that I think kind of yeah,
7: uh, a trend. I think you know, cable labs could speak for the industry because we had all the CEOs on our board on, on right. our executive committee, and what we did, and just a thumbnail description here, is we developed a process. The process was we would go to our industry and make a list of requirements. Mm-hmm. What do you want? That's how the modem started. Mm-hmm. It's actually a digital box. It's right. The same way. Sure. Made a list. And then we would develop a spec around that, trying to make that work. Mm -hmm. Then still inside the industry, we would go back to the technical people. And I think you saw that in that previous interview, we had very good technical people from the member companies, from the MSOs. They'd read it over, they'd come back and say, no, 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 fix this, do that. When we got through with all of that, we had an industry-wide agreement on the technical side about what it was gonna be. Mm -hmm. Then we would take that and put it out to a select group in the industry of industry people. We would ask industry, do you wanna participate in this? Mm -hmm. And the modem, we had like 500 companies because they're beginning to see the scale. Wow, that's gonna be a lot of units. So we then went out to them privately and said, what do you think of this? And of course they came back and said, if you do this change, we can make it cheaper and Mm -hmm. so on. Following an agreement there, then we would take it to a standards organization and have the debate. But by that time, you had companies that were looking at the spec and, saying, and had prototypes built mm-hmm. before the standards, actually. Mm-hmm. And then we developed what we called an incubator. We would have the manufacturers come into the lab with the hardware that they had built uh, against the spec. Mm-hmm. And we tried out in the laboratory. And as John mentioned, the really critical thing was interoperability. We'd plug these things together, and they wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. I said, well, what's going on here? And with a lot of very capable people, who some of whom you met, they would figure out what was wrong, work with the manufacturers, we'd fix it. Now, eventually, we got to the end of this, and we needed a chip to go in the modem. And we worked really closely with any manufacturer that was willing to work with us. Intel worked with us for a while, but Broadcom really put a lot of effort in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Broadcom kind of wanted a proprietary solution and yeah. they offered some deals, which I just had to turn down. Yeah. We can't do that because we wanted multiple vendors on the chip and the hardware.
6: Mm-hmm.
7: Now, the end of all of this is, just to get to the end of it, after, after the incubator, then came the commercial units. And before a commercial unit could go into the industry, we certified it. And then what we did is we take it in the lab and, and the cable labs were tested against the spec. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it was a difficult test. We the last thing we wanted was to put out a lot of standardized modems and have them not work. Right. So we spent a lot of time making sure they did work. We even established certification boards, which were actually representative of the cable labs board. They didn't work for the cable lab staff, they worked for the board. Mm-hmm. And the net of that was they could speak for the board. And they would privately look at all the tests that we did and say, this is certified or it's not. Mm-hmm. And once it was certified, then the cable companies knew that it would work mm-hmm. and they could buy it from that manufacturer. At one time, we started out with certifying one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, there was a head end to go with this too, which I won't tell you about right now, mm-hmm. but that was a, another complex standard setting effort. Um, we started went up with one manufacturer. But within a year, we had 100 manufacturers making modems. We mm-hmm. had really the power of scale. We had the power of commoditizing that modem. And the real risk was we would have only one chip, mm-hmm. And but we had multiple, manu- we finally got multiple manufacturers making multiple chips mm-hmm. and the vendors all used them and it all worked together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the general problem. So that- let me, Dick, spend a little bit of time before we run out of time altogether
4: to talk about Doxis. Uh, this is the 20th anniversary of Doxis uh, this year, 1.0. Obviously, we're all talking about Doxis 3.1 at this point. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, what is Doxis, and um, you know, how does it work with a cable modem, let's say, and um, what was Cable Labs' role in developing both the cable modem and then into Doxis?
7: Okay, well, um, to kind of key off of what John was saying, uh, the Cable Lab's role was on the technology side. We right. could develop the spec and we could put that forward and, and get a manufacturing base, uh, which we talked a little bit about. Um, another really important uh concept there that was outside the range of cable labs was uh, cable operators really didn't know how to manage data at the time it was a new service mm-hmm. and it was ip and it required a different group of people and uh, basically what happened is at home came along and provided that expertise it was kind of a turnkey service for cable operators so that was an extraordinarily important element. If we hadn't had that, we would never have uh, prevailed here. And the third thing was investment, which you've already mentioned. In, in order to make these systems work two-way required a lot of investment. I don't know the extent of it, but it's in the $100 billion class. It's in the 50 to $100 billion class it took to upgrade the systems to be able to do two-way and make this this all work. So it's three things. Now, going back to the cable labs, uh, part of it, what was DOCSIS? The development of the modem was uh, interesting because uh, the industry, the, the manufacturing industry saw that we as an industry were interested in data. So there were several companies that developed hardware to sell to the cable industry to be able to do high-speed data. We had efforts going on at Labs, so we kind of understood this, but the real progress came out of industry. And there were three major modems that I remember. I don't want to forget the names right here, but there was a Land City modem, um, there was a Zenith modem, and there was another one, which was kind of Motorola GI hybrid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they had developed modems and they were in trials with the cable industry. And then at one of our board meetings, and when these are the minutes of that board meeting, I made a presentation. Here's what's happening, here are the three modems and you know various things. And and we had tested them at Cable Labs, and we knew the strengths and weaknesses, and there were weaknesses in all of them. So we didn't really like all of them, but they were, you know, they were almost, they were on the prototype, but they were early modems. Um, So at this meeting, uh, and John's statement is in there. He basically said, okay, cable labs, you go work with industry, the guys that have been developing this, you work with the MSOs and you come up with a common way of doing this because we want to have interoperability among among these systems. We really don't want to have these orphaned systems. So we took that as a mandate and mandate became DOCSIS. Uh, we hired people um, like uh, Bob Krukshank, or you met Tom Moore. They, they came into Cable Labs as students, uh, as interns during the summer. And these guys are geniuses. And they took over, really and made all this happen. Um, out of that, what we developed, uh, working with industry and so on, there was another. MCNS was an organization of operators, of the four main operators. They did a lot of, of uh, development of the standard. We took it inside. We put out RFPs. I, we went through this process I just outlined. So we got a lot of feedback from industry. Uh, and the net of that was, there's some really important things in DOCSIS. One is error correction. Right. That's was highly proprietary. Uh, GI Motorola contributed to that uh, to us uh, on a royalty-free basis um, and then uh, the uh, actual uh, Mac layer which you mm-hmm. t- uh, Tom Moore developed Tom Moore uh, together with industry it's a it was a it's groundbreaking it, the telephone companies were all doing transmission by allowing slots you mm-hmm. get a time slot well that doesn't scale you get 300 modems out there a thousand modem it doesn't work we kept, and we had to demonstrate in the lab we had to get 300 modems and hook them up and show everybody it doesn't work, um, and then there were modulation problems. Uh, Land City was very high data rate. You you wanted to know the data rates. Land City early one was a megabit, which was huge. Right. Because a megabit and a half was a T1 line, which cost right. you I don't know right. a telephone company you're selling that. At that was a thousand dollars a month or you something. Think. So yeah. we thought, why well, we can do that. But the problem with the land city, when it was a little bit fragile, didn't always do, especially on some of the systems that were not tight. Mm-hmm. So we had that. Zenith was an early one. It only worked at some low, lower data rate. And, and that was its problem. It just didn't have a higher data rate. And the GI uh, one had this polling problem. So mm-hmm. we said, you know, mm-hmm. let's take all this, put it together and figure out. So we worked out. We worked with the industry. We worked with the MSOs, came up with a DOCSIS spec. And then we standardized it. I took it to the ITU because we needed a good standards body. And that was, that's the granddaddy. Yep. We took it there and standardized it worldwide. So basically you have a modem standard that's universal throughout the world. First time that ever happened in the cable industry and huge scale, huge buying capability and a really good service. It, it turns out, but if we hadn't had at home and we hadn't had the investment we would have had a great white coat laboratory device. Uh, so it took an industry commitment, not, not just CableWise. I'm very proud of the work that happened at CableWise. I think we had you know, some really excellent people. They did an excellent job. Uh, well, it's one something things- to be pr- very proud of is an industry.
3: Ruz Bey Yassini is often referred to as the father of the cable modem. In 1980, he was involved in the development of local area networks. He then connected buildings and facilities via enterprise networking, which became the basis, or as Yasani terms it, the DNA of broadband technology. Yasini's company, LandCity, pioneered early modems that were used to connect university and military facilities. By the early 90s, he was working with nine of the top 10 MSOs, and by 1996, 400 operators worldwide were using LandCity technology royalty-free, which, in Yasani's words, became the essence for the DOCSIS platform. Passionate about broadband's promise across a wide spectrum of potential applications, he traveled millions of miles to spread the word. Today, Yassini is Chairman and CEO of YAS Capital, a technology advisory and investment firm in New England, and is the Executive Director of the University of New Hampshire's Broadband Center of Excellence.
8: It all started in early 1980, if you really look. The whole um, industry, if not the entire corporate America and enterprise, we're really excited to get the computer all connected within the buildings and make it to work. So the area of the local area networking shaped itself in early 1980. There were a number of the technology to be able to do so, and then the factories like General Motors and Ford and Chrysler, who were also wanted to be automated, they said, "What about us?" The factories were far bigger than a building that you could connect the networks together, and. Um, they didn't know how to connect all the computers, all the devices together. So they created uh, what they call at that time the IEEE A2.4 and a basic of the broadband technology to really connect. Technology was not ready. The RF technology wasn't quite prepared. While the factory automation failed in early 80s, the corporate America and enterprise networking took off. So was mid-'80s to late '80s, so for some of us were around, and uh, looked at the industry, well, local networking is working. What about facility-wide networking? and what about city-wide networking? So we took the story and we tried to see what's the common denominator you can actually bring that can help the um, uh, buildings and facilities distance apart from each other be connected. So the broadband concept, which came from enterprise networking within the buildings, within the uh, corporations, actually shape and formed itself to broadband technology. But because broadband wasn't ready, we had to go and create the elements and DNA of the broadband, which was cable modem, the heart of it.
0: Meanwhile, <coughs> there's this thing called the Internet being created, right, which sort of dovetailed with this progression of, uh, of broadband and, and local area network technology.
8: So we had a good perfect storm, if you will, in that era. We had the creation of ARPANET slash internet by the government. We had the formations and a structure of the cable modem to be designed by entrepreneurs. And then we had universities to work in the World Wide Web. But these three combined together came together very nicely to shape and form what we know today as 2.2 billion people around the globe to be connected on the broadband. But the essence of that all came together in a window of the eight to ten years. And that eight to ten years was probably very critical for our industry because, A, the cable industry as we know it at that time, a one-way system, was not really prepared to really make the investment nor go the next step outside the video. The video was a comfort zone. They wanted to do everything about the video. This thing about data and this thing about high speed and this thing about two-way was really needed to be proven to them. The good news about Land City was because we had a s- significant market shares by 1996. An industry, as I said, 400 top operators were utilizing us. The message was clear for us from operators you are too small as a startup company mm-hmm. uh, to be able to survive, even though we were dealing, doing 95% of the technology and the box shipment. So we sold the company to Bay Network at the time, which was enterprise networking, and Bay Network. Later it uh, was sold um, to the Nortels and the rest of it is the story that goes to the Irish Corporation. But in order for technology to survive we had to do two things. One was sell our company mm-hmm. to a bigger enterprise. The secondly, I had to fight and overcome Motorola, Intel and HP, three of major competitors who wanted to come to the industry but they didn't have the technology we had. So we turned around and put our technology of what we call the free royalties in the standardization models. Um, thanks to the cable labs, we were able to do that, and the credit on that goes to Bill you know, Bill, by 1995, uh, in the Western Cable Show, had recognized every one of these operators are buying cable modem, and everybody buys from different guys, and none of them can really transform. So uh, Bill Schlyers in the Western Cable Show, led the organization, so the standard was good. And at that time, we were one of the pioneers to help the cable labs and the cable industry to adopt our technology because they had to adopt the working technology that was proven and, and kind of doing the job. And thanks to the number of the good things between the CEOs at the time, uh, from Bill Schliers to Bill Burston to Jim Robbins to the CTOs, like yeah. I mentioned, uh, all came together. And there were other two uh, successful members, too, on the public relations side, thanks to Roger Brown, which gets a lot of credit. Roger and I spent long times together to really write the story of what this thing supposed to do, it has to work. Robert Sachs and I talked a number of the times in order to see the passion for what regulator needed to do. And also, something really important to mention, Pamela Yacine, my younger sister, mm-hmm. uh, she was um, brilliant and behind me 100% to really allow me to work 72 hours, 74 hours straight, where she was single-handedly taking care of my elderly parents you know, while I was working and traveling. I remember there was a year that I traveled just on that year alone, two million miles, going from continent to continent to try to share the story. So the credit goes to Pamela for, for helping um, and, and being behind me to make those things happen.
0: Roger Brown, the, the late and the great Roger Brown, a friend of both of ours, um, in 1998, I think, had um, named you CED magazines. Roger was the editor of CED Magazine. Uh, he named you Man of the Year for your work in bringing this technology to reality. And was it around that time that bega- you began your work making regular pilgrimages to uh, Colorado to work
8: with the Cable Labs organization? So um, I joined Cable Labs as a consultant for them in 1996 timeframe. From 1996 to 2003, every week I travel. We get up at 3 a.m. in the morning in Boston, rain or shine, uh, snow or ice. We get, I get on 6 o'clock flights to be at the Cable Labs by 10 o'clock. And then on Friday night we we'll go back again to be able to do that. A number of my colleagues and we built a consortium of 500 engineers from multiple companies uh, as a result of my leaderships in theirs and we were able to help um, crystallize what I used to call a Lanzity cable modem to the essence of the DOCSIS. So DOCSIS was born in you know, March of 1999. Uh, But from 1996 to 1999, we work to really make that happen with our team and uh, collaborations of everybody.
0: Uh, In in our audience is a friend of ours, Michael Schwartz, who spent a lot of time at Cable Labs, and he's going to kill me if I get this wrong, but for our audience, DOCSIS stood for Data Over Cable Services Interface Specification. Correct. When we say DOCSIS, that's what we're referring to.
8: Well said. Um, In fact, I remember we sat in so many meetings. And the people had to decide what name do they want to give it to. And a um, number of our um, certification board members at the time were really uh, um, positive about it. They said, well, we'll let the engineers keep building it. And we use the engineering terminology until the marketeers find a name. And no marketeer ever came up Doxas with a better names. S- than we're, at, we're on
0: DOCSIS 3.1 today, even Correct. in 2014. What did it do? What was the contribution of, of this? The family of DOCSIS specifications.
8: So what DOCSIS did, um, did three good things for our industry. First and most important, um, um, establish a platforms and a protocols of a standardization that we could actually grow a million modem installations to a majority of the cable plant distribution that it goes. So that helps the um, crystallizing the technology, crystallizing the siliconizations and, and making sure the global industry speak the same common language when it comes to the high-speed data over cable infrastructure. The second thing it showed collaborations among the engineers from a variety of the companies, that how they could work together tirelessly mm-hmm. to really overcome some of the fundamental problems that cable industry had because of the noise, because of the each cable plant being a bit different than the others, and the manageability of building this large network. When we are thinking and talking to people, we want to have a networks of a hundred million users that people would laugh at you so but you have to build about network management we have to do the second one. Third thing I think it did a fabulous thing for cable labs because Doxis put the cable labs in the heart of the cable industry where it was uh, seen as an organization that can actually be able to transform some of the technology into what they wanted to do. So the, the elements that I think will always stand tall for me <coughs> with the Doxis and the cable modem is the technology and the peoples were really the fundamental of, of giving the cable industry a second life of the revenue, where the market capitalization, if you look at the cable industry in 1980 and 1990 versus today, is a hundredfold difference. And that hundredfold market cap is really enabled and empowers by making them to be a telecommunication pipe versus a video pipe. You
0: know, today, you're well aware of this, the majority of U.S. households with Internet service have a Doxus enabled Internet service. It's become the dominant platform for high-speed Internet delivery in the U.S. and uh, uh, very influential um, elsewhere. I remember, just to wax poetic with you for a second, hearing Rob Glazer, who was an early streaming media pioneer with Real Networks of Seattle, got up on stage once, and he said he thought Doxus was the cable industry's greatest creation, you know, because it enabled so much. And I, I want to talk to you about, well, let's talk about what you did after that chapter of your, your career. You had, you had invented the cable modem. You helped the cable industry create this standard that really affected the world. Um, what did you turn your attention to then? So there's
8: one more story on DOCSIS I want to tell. Do it. Before I go. One of the biggest value of the DOCSIS was um, that everybody questioned me, still questioned me, why did you do it? You know, we provide the technology and the essence of the cable modem, free royalty to the industry. Nobody before uh, cable modem and DOCSIS has ever given to this industry a free IPR, intellectual property right. Nobody after us has ever come and do that. And everybody questions, why did you do it? Why, why didn't you guys keep the royalties? If you remember right now, there's 2.2 billion modem deployed out there, so times $1. That would have been significant revenue. Uh, for an operation to have, but was more important on on, on cable modem from my point of view to connect the people and let the technology uh, allow the telecommuting happen. You know, when I was in Tokyo, four hundred miles outside of the Tokyo, in the middle of the rice field, the, the lady came to me and said, "You are Mr. Yasini." I said, "I didn't do anything wrong." He said, "No, no, no. You are the one who did the cable modem." our our town called Toyota City and we have your technology built into our town and I can you know work from my home through the rice fields with the factory. So uh, that type of influences would have not happened if you would have not put that technology free for the human kind to use it over the globe because with no royalty the cost of the modem that was $18,000 once upon a time reached to a 30 US dollar and that's remarkable.
0: So it wasn't a hard decision for you.
8: No, it was it was simple enough to make because we know with the open standard, free royalties, and it working technology, the rest is the history, and it is. So it really was a well-known decision we made, and we're proud of making that happen.
3: Paul O'Neill, part of the team working for Eucinium on broadband modem development, both at Land City and its predecessor company, AppleTech, introduces us to three modems including a 1980s era 75-pound device initially developed by AppleTech, then perfected at Land City for private campus use. By the late 1980s, Land City was approached by Digital Equipment Corporation to develop modems for a commercial environment for deployment by cable operators. Land City created the LCB for business, then went solo to develop the LCP for personal use, which eventually was deployed by cable operators in the hundreds of thousands throughout the world.
9: I'm Gene O'Neill uh, uh, from the Boston, Massachusetts area, and I uh, had the distinct pleasure once upon a time of working for this company right here, Land City. And uh, Land City, I was on a team of engineers and support staff that uh, Ruse Bay hired, Ruse Bay Yassini, back in the uh, er, early 1990s when he started up Land City. We were all uh, remnants from the Applitech uh, Corporation. So, as you know, yesterday we were getting a tour of the museum. And we spotted this box, then kind of a uh, a big box compared to what it was uh, once upon a, uh, what, what the technology is today. You know, this is uh, 1980s technology. So, in terms of introduction, that's the that's uh, who I am from uh, the Land City days. And Land City was actually a company that was started in 1990 by Ruse Bay and uh, as a result of the work done at the Applitech Corporation. And in the, in the early 1980s, uh, Applitech was was established by Ash DeHode. And in 1985, after four years in the Air Force as a radar technician, I joined uh, with the Applitech Corporation. And Applitech's product, which this is a very, very good um, sample of, this is a remnant of that Applitech Corporation, that that product was designed to work on broadband campus-wide uh, networks, and so military installations, universities, hospitals, nuclear power plants, Rock Island Arsenal was a was a, a big customer of ours. Uh, so the 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 one thing that all those customers shared in common was the fact that they all operated a broadband network in a campus environment, and so we developed a product based on the work that Ash DeHo did at Miter Corporation. Um, and back in the late '70s and '80s, I should say that Applitech developed the technology which allowed for the the operation data communications over a, a, a campus-wide broadband uh, broadband network. So we had some success. We had uh, an, a certain number of uh, customers that deployed that technology. And in the late 1980s, Digital Equipment Corporation approached us and asked us if we thought we could make these products, this product, work in a broadband environment. In a commercial broadband environment, at CATV companies, so we thought that we could. So we worked with Digital, did a proof of concept out in um, Oregon, and also in Massachusetts uh, at Continental Cablevision. We had some people that at Digital Equipment Corporation that were friendlies that were on the Continental Cablevision system, and uh, we set up equipment in their homes and and sought to make this equipment work um, over a commercial. Uh, broadband environment. and the one thing that was not very common at that particular time but absolutely necessary for this to work was the return path. So there were certain uh, locations that had a return path. most of it was inet at that particular time that had the return path activated. and so we chose very carefully where we made this uh, equipment um, to operate in a in a in a proof of concept uh, type of environment. so so as I said yesterday, we're getting a, a, uh, a tour of the museum here and looking at some of this old equipment that's uh, been uh, deployed throughout the, the, the country, throughout the world as a result of the work done in the CATV business. And we stumbled across this big box here and uh, I was very surprised to see it, but uh, very uh, happy to see it. I have not seen this box in a very, very long time, but I still talk about it. I do a lot of, of instruction for the cable television industry. A lot work with cable MSOs do a lot of DOCSIS technology instruction. And uh, and the, I use this as an example, as an introduction to DOCSIS. Where did DOCSIS come from? And one of the things I talk about is this big 75 pound box that, that uh, we developed at Appletech and perfected at Land City. And uh, so 75, 75 pounds, obviously it stands this high off the table. I wish I could take this with me because this is exactly what I talk about in the classroom, is is that the box sits, sits this high off the table. It's this wide. It's this long. It has a internal 750-watt power supply, seven fans, a card cage, and, and a, 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 an array of cards, each 12 by 12, that uh, plug into the card cage and its be- uh, a back plane uh, at the back side of that card cage which pulls it all together and if we look at the at the back side of this, uh, can I move this? Sure. So if we look at the back side of this particular box we can see that there's a, there's a 10 base 5 Ethernet interface and a uh, serial port connection and 2F connectors. Obviously uh, power outlet, the on-off switch. So when I first saw this box, all of these banks here were filled with RS-232 ports. And so this was designed to operate in a campus-wide environment, providing RS-232 communications. So this, this would sit in a closet and it would be the ribbon cables connected to the desktop and to the servers and to the terminals. And it was all RS-232 connections back to a, a, a terminal server or back to the server itself, right? And so in the 1980s, with the perfection of 10Base-T Ethernet, uh, we 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 turned this box from RS-232 connections into an Ethernet, and so obviously we saw the deployment of Ethernet local area network technologies uh, throughout. Obviously, Ethernet developed in the 1970s, and 10Base-T um, was uh, perfected in the in the 1980s. And this we're looking at here required a transceiver on this particular interface for a connection to uh, the uh, to the 10Base-T local area network, which obviously would be RJ45 connectors, Cat5 cable over to a over to a hub, right? So this is uh, it brings back a lot of very very fond memories. And as I said, uh, D- Digital Equipment Corporation asked us if we thought we could make this work in a commercial environment. We thought we that we could. We proved it. Digital Equipment Corporation signed a contract with us, and together we developed a product. Uh, that was a joint development of Land City and uh, Digital Equip- Equipment Corporation and the net result was this particular box which we referred to and from the Land City perspective and we can see a Land City logo here um, as a, an LC Big B, an LC uppercase B and the LC obviously was Land City and the, the B was a Business Solution. So when we first uh, developed this technology, as I said, it worked in a commercial environment, uh, excuse me, in a private environment on, on uh, campus-wide uh, networks, and uh, it was the Appletech uh, Corporation that was uh, responsible for the development of this technology. What was necessary to take place was to take this product and to shrink it down uh, into something that was going to be much more manageable in a, commercial envi- in a commercial environment. And this was probably 1988, 89, when we were first uh, uh, approached by Digital Equipment Corporation. And then at that particular time, of course, the internet had not taken off yet with the great popularity that it is, that it is today, or even what it was in the, in the, mid, the early and mid-1990s. So what we were trying to do is we were trying to convince cable television operators to use this particular technology to uh, compete with the phone companies for T1 circuits. So the phone companies were selling T1 circuitry point-to-point technology for $1,500 a month and so we thought that the cable operators might be interested in that same and so hence when we talk about an LCB a business solution it was going to be that particular solution was going to be provided with this particular box and that's why we called it an LCB and then so that was our first initial uh, product developed by Land City as i said this even though this box has the Land City logo on it this was developed really by the Appletech corporation this was our first box after that development effort together with digital, uh, we no longer had the relationship with digital. I think it was a two year commitment, something like that. And so we, Land City, went on to develop the next product, which was the personal product, the LCP. And so this is LCP, P being uh, personal. And there were literally hundreds of thousands of these deployed uh, across the world and, uh, and, and clearly here in the United States multiple, multiple MSOs um, deployed this particular technology. And uh, we attracted competition. There were Motorola, COM 21, U.S. Robotics, there's some of the RCA uh, uh, has a product there. So just looking around in the museum and seeing some of these particular products, we realized uh, it brings back these memories of of competing. And my uh, pleasure and memories were in that particular, of those particular days was trying to, Trying to help Cablevision and Media One and Comcast and Charter, uh, at home and Roadrunner and all of those different uh, companies to deploy this particular product right here, the marriage of data communications together with RF communications in a cable TV commercial CATV environment. But this is where it started, this big box right here, which I still talk about even to this day, and it's a was a proprietary solution pre Doxis clearly in the, late, in the 80s, developed in the 80s, perfected in the 90s, and deployed extensively throughout the, throughout the 90s until the DOCSIS specification was completed in 1997. So.
3: You've just heard the story of DOCSIS. We hope you'll join us again soon. Until then, this is Luke Woodruff for the Cable Center the nonprofit educational organization that helps support and fuel the ongoing legacy of the cable industry's innovations and influence. Thank you for listening.